Well, good morning, Christ City Church. In our short sermon series, just three sermons long on loving our neighbors in a time of conflict, it would have been really weird if we didn't have a single sermon on loving your neighbor. This sermon is that sermon. Here it is. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself is a commandment that is fundamental to the teaching of the entire Bible. All the way back in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the love command was given as a summary for the ethical life of Israel. And in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus lists it next to the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then throughout the New Testament letters, as the apostles and others wrote to the churches, it's the heart and the soul of our Christian ethic. And the idea is this. If we have received the love of Jesus for us, who died in our place, though we were sinners, if we have received the gift of his love, as Paul says in Romans 5, verse 5, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, if, because of the resurrection and ascension, we are now enabled and commanded to love, then we must love as Jesus even has loved us. This command is central to our witness. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I think to some degree this is all familiar stuff for us. Okay, we, we know that Christianity has this ethic of love for others deep at its heart. But I want to highlight a problem that we face as we begin. You see, when we approach the Bible in order to understand what it says, in order to obey what it teaches us, we approach it from the vantage point of our own culture. It's inevitable that we do this. Our own culture being uh, all of the things that form us into the sorts of people that we are today, our education, the conversations we have in the workplace, the media we consume, the value sets that we live and breathe as we live in this world and inevitably become to value what it values. And tragically, because of this, we'll often nod our heads yes in agreement to what the Bible teaches, but fail to do what it calls us to do. Because we fail to see how it calls us to change the way that we are living. This is true, I think, when it comes to the biblical command to love your neighbor. At least it's true for me. And I confess that for me, loving your neighbor is something that for most of my life, I think that I've generalized as a command to be nice to people in general. And I think because of how I've generalized that command, I've often used it as an excuse not to love my actual and my literal neighbors. I want to turn to the Bible now. And as I do, I want to explain a little bit where we're going in this message. Today, I want to try to show you how particular and local the command to love our neighbors is. First, I want to come at this through the back door. I want to look at some of Paul's words to the Thessalonian church. And then second, I want to take a little time to draw out some of the big ideas, the big biblical ideas that undergird Paul's teaching and his instruction to the Thessalonian church. And then third we'll conclude as we consider what this means for us in our particular location in our lives in Kitsilano. So first look with me at Paul's words to the Thessalonians from chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. 
Paul says this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So Paul starts with this great and awesome um, just declaration of what the Thessalonian church was doing. And he wrote to the Thessalonians, he wrote this letter, after hearing that despite increasing persecution, they were flourishing in Jesus. They were a young Christian church who had received the good news about Jesus. They received his Holy Spirit and the love of God had been poured into them and they strived to live that love outwards to one another another and to their neighbors. Specifically, this group of Christians, they were caring for members of the church during a time of famine. They were helping one another, not only in their own city, but throughout the Roman province of Macedonia, which is this area that's roughly overlapping with northern Greece today and the southern Balkan states today. But after saying this, then look at what Paul says in the second half of verse 10 and the rest of the passage. He says this, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. To do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. See, Paul urges the church to greater love. He says, do this more and more. But then he says something quite surprising. He says, aspire, make it your ambition to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. This is surprising for us, I think, because Paul is, after all, the missionary to the Gentiles, to those that are not Jewish. He's the missionary who is famous today for still being the missionary of all missionaries, the church planter of all church planters. He's committed to spreading the good news about Jesus far and wide throughout the whole known world, to bring sinners to repentance from sin so they would know the forgiveness of God, receive love, come and be reconciled to him, and serve him with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And yet he doesn't tell the Thessalonians to live out their love for others by going out and each buying a donkey, selling their possessions, becoming transient, and living their lives, traveling from place to place to place, traipsing the world over to make converts for Jesus. No, he says the opposite. Make it your ambition to live quietly. One commentator even translated this, be restless to be at rest. So what's going on here? What's happening in the mind of Paul? Well, there's a little context, I think, that will help us. What was happening in the Thessalonian church was that they had grown distracted by the times. They believed Jesus would return imminently, and that was causing them to live in a sort of end times hysteria. Many of them, it appears, even stopped working. After all, Jesus was just around the corner. He was about to return, so why would we need to work any longer? Moreover, it was a time of famine, and many people within the church who didn't have means were being supported by those that did. So they had enough to continue living and they didn't feel like they needed to work anyway. And as happens when we have an increase in downtime in a world full of conflict, the Thessalonian church got bogged down in other people's business. 
They became gossips. They would stick their noses in one another's personal lives. And they worked hard, not at witness, but they were becoming distracted. You can imagine them becoming obsessed with their social media feeds, or the equivalent in the ancient world. As they would wake up and spend more time scrolling through the sensational news they'd hear, doom scrolling, if you will, then worshiping their new savior, then getting on their knees and praying for their literal neighbors by name. And as a result, they were beginning to fail in their love and their witness. So Paul urges them, in the context of a command to love one another, mind you, he urges them to aspire to make it their ambition, in verse 11, to live quietly to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. Why is that? Well, for two reasons that are both given in verse 13. First, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Second, so that you would be dependent on no one. See, Paul knew that the Thessalonians church that their church's lack of local stability, their lack of providing for themselves and their own communities, he knew that their bickering, they're sticking their noses in one another's business, that all of this was beginning to harm their witness. And he urged them to double down instead on living well, on loving well, on providing for themselves where they were so that they could flourish as a healthy local church and a local witness that was present living amongst the people that so desperately needed to hear the good news of the gospel. So that their good reputation, not an evil reputation, so that their good reputation would bear much fruit for Jesus and his kingdom as they existed as a community of his. I want to give you an example of the way that local stability and commitment to everyday love, how those things can lead to increased mission. I want to show you another example of the logic that Paul was working at, how he's urging this church to be faithful, to be healthy where they are, uh, in order that the mission of Jesus would increase widely. The example is this. In the 1960s, the United Arab Emirates was nothing like it is today. It was poor, and only 50% of the babies who were born there survived. They had a 50% mortality rate. That was until doctors Pat and Marion Kennedy answered the missionary call of Jesus. And they came as missionary doctors to start a hospital in the United Arab Emirates. Today, that hospital has overseen the births of more than 90,000 babies, including several members of the Royal Emirati family. And infant mortality has been reduced to less than 1%. You see, Pat and Marion answered the call of Jesus. And they, along with several other missionaries, they settled in the desert. They left their comfortable homes in the West and went to the desert. And there, they were stable. There, they committed in faithfulness to a people and to a place. They began to serve. They worked hard with their hands. They loved one another, and they love their neighbors. And God used it for great witness. Today, the United Arab Emirates is one of the most conservative countries in the Arabian Peninsula, 
But Christianity is thriving. And it's one of the only countries there to allow churches to flourish. Why is that? Well, actually, in the words of the leaders of the United Arab Emirates, they have allowed the churches to flourish because they said to them, you loved us before we had oil. Similarly, when Paul urges the Thessalonians to live quiet lives, to work hard, and to mind their own affairs, his concern is their love of their neighbors for the sake of mission. It's counterintuitive, but he knew as a missionary for Jesus that the Thessalonian church had to flourish for them to be able to flourish. They must abound in love and faithful and local committed witness for Jesus with a good reputation for the long haul. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 9 to 12 is instructive for us today. Just think for a second about our own context. We live in a world where boundaries are no longer determined by rivers and mountains. We live in a world where airplanes can carry us around the world, where social media can connect us to friends in Tehran and Mogadishu, and where I can walk across the street to eat food from Malaysia. I live across from the banana leaf. And because of that, we can see the command to love our neighbors, not as a specific command to love our literal neighbors, but as this universal idea about being nice to the people of the world. And I think that generalization is dangerous. I think it's dangerous because it allows us to duck Paul's specific local instruction and passion for the health of a local church committed to a place, committed to faithful witness where they were. It allows us to feel like we are loving our neighbors well when we know neither the names of those sitting next to us in the church, let alone the names of those who live in the apartment next to us or the floor above us or the neighborhood around us. But Paul is urging us and he's urging the Thessalonians toward a love for neighbor that begins with a stable community in a particular place that bears fruit for generations. I want to show you now some of the big ideas that I think Paul is drawing from for the way that he's thinking about his mission work and the establishment of these healthy local churches. Friends, God has always worked through the stable local presence of his people. You see, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's in all of his creation. And if you haven't noticed, you and I aren't. We struggle to try to balance a calendar that requires us to be in several places in the same day, let alone, let alone in the whole world over in the same moment. Our problem is that we take up only two square feet at a time. And because of that, despite FaceTime and Zoom and social media and other things, we have a really, really hard time loving our neighbors well in Seattle when we have been placed by God in Vancouver. And God knows that. And in fact, from the very beginning, God has chosen to exercise his infinite and his glorious purpose to spread his name throughout this world through limited, finite people who only occupy that two-square-foot place. At the very beginning, for example, God placed Adam and Eve in a garden in the newly created world. 
But he told them in that garden, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1, 28. You see, in the Genesis account, the garden was only in one small place, but there was an entire world. And God's command to Adam and Eve was to increase in number so that he could fill this world with particular people in particular places as they expanded outward to fill it. God knows that one human being can't reach this whole world. But one human being can reach their neighbors. This is the way that God has always worked. Through finite people with a limited local witness expanding to other people in a different, limited, and local witness. It's how he worked to save Abraham. It's how he worked to raise up the nation of Israel as a witness to the world of God's love and goodness. And it's how God himself worked when God became a man. The second person of the Trinity added deity to his humanity and came to us and dwelled among us, the person of Jesus Christ. And he didn't do it by becoming omnipresent. No, he went from being omnipresent to incarnating himself as one man in one place, in his humanity. Eugene Peterson even paraphrases, I think accurately, John 1 verse 14. said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into not the entirety of the world, but a particular place moved into the neighborhood. You see, the word became flesh to live among us, to show us the love of God and to die on the cross in our place, to give us grace and mercy, to reconcile us with God, to be resurrected to the right hand of God in order that he might pour out his Holy Spirit on us as finite, limited individuals. So we would be filled with his love and act as his witnesses in our individual locations on this earth. You see, the Thessalonian church was a church that experienced persecution because of the gospel. They lived in unstable times that were full of conflict. And the situation in that church is instructive for us today. So I want to consider some of the implications of this teaching now as we conclude. And I think that whole context, I think it makes Paul's challenge to them a challenge that applies directly to us. Because we too live in a world that's full of conflict conflict. And we, like them, struggle to live out our Christian witness. So how do we apply Paul's words to our own church community? How do we live this out so that we are enabled to love our neighbors in Kitsilano well? Well, a couple ways. First, I think this. First, in a time of conflict, the church needs to focus on abounding more and more in love for one another. We Christ City, Kitsilano, sometimes think of ourselves as a church that loves one another well. We need to increase in this. We need to abound in loving one another more and more here in our own community. Because we must radiate the love of God so that it begins to flow out of this place to others. So that Kitsilano, the neighborhood, knows that we are disciples of Jesus Christ because we have love for one another. You see, Paul praises the Thessalonians for the love for one another, and yet he urges them, abound in this more and more. So let me ask you, in your efforts to love your neighbor, in your desire to reach your neighbors for Jesus, 
Do you consider your own involvement in this church as something essential or as something that's fairly optional? Do you love evangelism? Then what effort are you making today to love those who are here in this church? To be actively part of their lives. And let me encourage you, if you don't know where to start, especially in a season like this, start by getting to know the people who are on the Zoom call. Start by reaching out to one of them to ask to get a coffee, to go for a walk in a distance way outside, perhaps. You can start by joining a community group, by coming to Tuesday morning prayer at 7 a.m. to hear the needs of the church and be praying for them. You see, you can't love those who you don't know. And the second implication for us, I think, is this. For the sake of witness, Paul calls us to stability. Living quietly and minding our affairs and working with our hands and being dependent on no one, all of these things contribute to becoming a stable and a faithful witness for Jesus in our particular location. See, the Bible puts a priority on particular places and long-term faithfulness in those places. And friends, in this world that is so transient, in this world that values things over people, in this world that values transience over permanence, that is an incredible witness to the love of God, the steadfast love of God. So what if you determined to do the opposite of what the world's doing, valuing things over people and transience over permanence? What if you look for somewhere to live, not chiefly for economic opportunities or the possibility of increasing your comfort, but motivated first and foremost by a desire to be a stable and a faithful presence for Jesus? What if you thought of your home here, wherever you might live in Vancouver right now or beyond, What if you thought about it not just by its rental cost or square footage, but by the names of the faces of the neighbors who live next to it? The names and the faces of neighbors who you actually know, whose dreams and ambitions and hopes, whose burdens you understand and who you love. What if you think of your home as a beacon of hope and love? a place of hospitality and peace in the middle of this world that is just churning in turmoil and conflict. Vancouver's transient. Many people move quickly on from it after a time pursuing new and better opportunities. But what if you stayed? What if, for the sake of love for these people, you stayed? You see, for the sake of love for a particular people, Jesus laid down his life to die. He didn't die for people in general, but for people with faces and names who he loved. And in the same way, will we consider our ambitions, will we consider them worth dying for, for the sake of sharing the same love of Jesus that we've received by prioritizing people over things and permanence over transience. So we would be a stable and faithful witness here in Kitsilano for Jesus. 
Friends, my goal as a pastor, I'm going to share my heart with you. My goal as a pastor is to stay here in Kitsilano. To stay here committed to Christ City, Kitsilano, committed to you until I die. I certainly don't know what the Lord has for me, but as far as I can tell, what I want is to stay here and die in this place, living and serving for the long haul. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's not an easy decision for me to make. I struggle with this. I have qualms about it. I wonder about my long-term stability in a place like Kitsilano. This decision has cost me, and I've chosen to put many opportunities that were better in terms of financial gain or maybe even home ownership to put those off the table to commit here so that you and I might together have an opportunity to be a lasting and faithful witness to bear some fruit for Jesus in Kitsilano. Our witness is going to increase as we endure. Paul says we will reap if we do not give up. We're a young church, but what if we committed and stayed and pursued? You know, it takes time to dig in a neighborhood. It takes time to know your neighbors and to be known by them. It's difficult. We'll face hardships along the way. We might have better opportunities somewhere else. But what if we stayed? And what if because we stayed, we learned to love this place more deeply and these people more fully, and Jesus was glorified because of it? I urge you, Christ City, love your literal neighbors. Love them by abounding still more and more for love for one another at Christ City Church. Love them by striving to live a quiet life to mind your own affairs, to give yourself the work of the love of God and the love for neighbor. Work hard and be a stable witness for Jesus in Kitsilano to his glory. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we long to bear fruit for your kingdom here. And Father, we are moved and challenged by the way that you are a God who loves particular people. You are a God who is steadfast in your love. We confess that we aren't steadfast in our love. And Father, we ask that you give us endurance and opportunities to stay, to take the time that is needed to get to know our neighbors, to know one another, to abound more and more in love so that we would grow as a faithful and a stable witness so that we would see the fruit that that might bring, not just one year from now, but 10 years and 20 years and 40 years and 100 years from now. We ask for great things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.